Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. <laughs> you walk into a Starbucks and uh, you order a um, tall half-calf soy latte at 120 degrees or maybe a triple venti half-sweet non-fat caramel macchiato. Or how about a grande quad, non-fat, one-pump, no-whip mocha? Christina Bonham, yeah. <laughs> this is sort of what Christina's drink looks like. Um, I, told, I asked her one time, what was that one you, you got for me? It had flat and honey and white in it, and I just forgot what order those words go. Uh, if you're me, you know, you just walk in and say, you know, inject caffeine into my neck directly. Um, According to Starbucks Global Chief Marketing Officer, there are now more than 80,000 different combinations that you can order a Starbucks coffee. And, And that kind of mentality of choice and options kind of has invaded our entire culture, hasn't it? You know, including spiritual things. We seem to think that when it comes to matters of faith, that old Burger King slogan, have it your way, is, is how it applies to spirituality. And uh, when it comes to an authoritative spiritual text, uh, there's the Bible, and there's the Bhagavad Gavita, and the Koran, and the Book of Mormon, and Dianetics. And when it comes to religious leaders, you can select from Krishna, or Buddha, or Muhammad. And maybe the most common thing these days is to sort of grab your favorite bits from all of them, and then sprinkle in a bit of Brene Brown, who's great, and some Deepak Chopra, who's not so great, and some Oprah, and some... Joe Rogan, and maybe a little bit of Tony Robbins, and whatever current Instagram influencer de jour there is. I mean, talk about 80,000 different variations, your, your own spiritual mashup, as it were. So I guess searching for God is like climbing a mountain. And since we all know there's, there's more than one way to climb a mountain, mountains are too big for just one, uh, there must be an, any number of paths that can be taken. So, so we tend to look at all of the ideas about God through all the religions of the world as just sort of different ways up the mountain. So where does that leave you? Because if all roads lead to God, then all spiritual paths are equally legitimate. It doesn't really matter what you believe, much less who, what, or how you worship. The only problem is that there is one faith that isn't playing well in the sandbox, and it just happens to be the Christian faith. And here's what Jesus himself said. He said, I am the way 
and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in that statement, Jesus makes it clear that there is a Father God. You remember we talked a few weeks ago where I you know, tried to briefly tackle the mystery of the Trinity, one God in three persons. And Jesus says that there's only one way to that Father God, and it's through him. And he was very careful with his language in that verse. Jesus didn't say that he was a way or a truth. He said he was the way, the truth, the life, and that no one, no one comes to God except through a full relationship with him. That was as politically incorrect then as it is today. But it has marked Christianity from the very beginning. Uh, as the early Christian leader and one of the first followers of Jesus, Peter, this is what he says in Acts. It is by the name of Jesus Christ, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And for a lot of people, it just makes them cringe. Maybe it, it's made you cringe. Um, maybe for you, that sort of exclusivity was your final straw. It was, it was your off-ramp from the faith. The idea that Christianity, and specifically Jesus, is the only way to God is so out of sync with our times. We're in this series called Losing My Religion about this epidemic of people who are questioning, doubting, deconstructing their faith, which is one thing. Something actually I've argued it can be a positive thing, maybe even a necessary thing. But many of those same people stop and don't reconstruct their faith, uh, at least not with the core truths of, of the Christian message. And today I'd like to talk about our message. And if that sounds of interest, let's jump in. Beginning with what Christianity is really saying about the only way. At first, it's not saying that every other religion is completely wrong. My man C.S. Lewis once wrote that if you are a Christian, you do not have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all through. If you are a Christian, you are free to think that all these religions, even the strangest ones, might contain at least some hint of the truth. And Lewis goes on to suggest um, that we think of this in terms of, of arithmetic. There is only one right answer to two plus two, and that's four. But if you were to answer six, it would be a lot closer than answering 37. While there is only one right answer, some answers are closer to being right than others. Does that make sense? Um, that's not all. If all God's truth, or sorry, if all truth is God's truth, then it remains true wherever we find it. So as a Christian, I can appreciate some of the, some of the truths, for instance, from a few of Buddhism's ideas, the, a few of what they call their noble truths, uh, like, like there's a lot of suffering in the world and that our desires are often the root of that suffering. Um, that Buddhism also teaches some, some things that we can appreciate and affirm about morality. You know, you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't pursue immoral sexual behavior, you shouldn't lie. But just because there may be elements of goodness 
and truth in, in other places doesn't mean you've, you've also found an equal and legitimate God. Like, in fact, the full teaching of that religion may entail a road that is heading in the totally opposite direction. Uh, so let's stick with the example of Buddhism, because there's also this deal-breaking difference between it and Christianity. The Dalai Lama himself has said publicly that the central doctrines of Buddhism and Christianity are not compatible. He's been quite open and said that there's no such thing as a Buddhist Christian or a Christian Buddhist because they're just fundamentally at odds with each other. And he's right. Christianity believes in in a personal God. Buddhism doesn't even believe in a higher being. Buddhism is, is essentially uh, an atheistic religion. The, the divide, that divide alone is just insurmountable. It's not, like, it's not like two different paths up the same mountain. We're talking about two different places on the map entirely. This is what you find when you compare Christianity to, to other major religions. Christians believe there's one God. Hindus believe there are millions uh, Christians embrace Jesus as God himself in human form. Muslims, um, Jesus doesn't even crack the top five of, of their prophets, much less the savior of the world. Whenever you have divisions like this, you, you really only have two options. You can either say that somebody is right in this particular area and everybody else is wrong, or you can say that everybody is wrong. What you can't say is that everyone is right. Uh, that it's the same path, the same idea, the same God. That would be intellectually confused at best, uh, maybe even intellectually dishonest. The Christian response of how we enter into a relationship with God, if in fact you even believe he exists, is, is going to be at odds with every other philosophy, ideology, and religion. And so in this series, we've tried to address some of the big objections uh, to the Christian faith. A few weeks ago, we talked about suffering and injustice in this life. And that has been a spiritual deal breaker for a lot of people. Although I argued it, it doesn't have to be. Um, now, as much as I don't want to go here, I know many who reject Christianity because of the idea of judgment in the next life. And and right now there's somebody who's thinking to themselves, either here or online, like, okay, so you're saying someone really good, really noble, like Gandhi, is in hell because he wasn't a Christian? Because if you are, you've lost me. I, I, I can't get behind that. So let's... Let's talk about it. First, no one is less of a broken or is in less of a broken relationship with God than anyone else. Um, We're all in the same messed up situation when it comes to finding the way to God. Gandhi wasn't a perfect person. If you've even read the most cursory of biographies in his life, you know that. So, so he faced the same issue that all of us face, uh, how to be made right with God, how to, repa- <clears throat> how to repair that relationship. The God of the Bible has said that 
There is one and only one way for that to happen and, and one and only one way to have your sins forgiven, which was the way that God provided through what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross was the payment for our sins, the only payment that was ever made for our sins. And that's what makes Jesus the only way. So what do you do with sincerely spiritual people like Gandhi, but whose spirituality was not rooted in Jesus? Does that mean it doesn't matter um, what you believe as long as you sincerely believe it? Well, that's, that's problematic. Uh, the one thing, it's one thing to value sincerity, which by the way, Jesus does. You know that from our Sermon on the Mount series, but it's, it's another to make sincerity the lone characteristic of spiritual truth. You know, how you believe matters, but so does what you believe. Because I think it goes without saying that you can be sincerely wrong about a lot of things. I can sincerely believe that when I reach into my medicine cabinet at 3 a.m. Uh, with a headache and sincerely believe I'm grabbing an Advil, but if I'm really grabbing a cyanide, my sincerity isn't saving me from being poisoned. Why am I keeping cyanide in my medicine cabinet? I have my reasons. What if instead of grabbing that Visine eye drops, uh, I grab crazy glue instead? You know, no matter how sincerely I believe it's medicine, it's going to do damage to my vision. There are very sincere people out there, and we, and we read about this all the time, who sincerely believe that some races are inferior, who sincerely believe the earth is flat, who believe this is a new one, that um, JFK Jr. is still alive and he's ready to take his rightful place as America's new leader. People who sincerely believe the moon landing was faked. Sincere beliefs, but they're sincerely wrong. Sincerity matters, but it can't be all that matters because sincerity alone can't change facts. So it's not simply the sincerity of our faith that matters, but the object of our faith Faith is very much like a rope. It matters what you tie it to. So back to the Gandhi question. If Christianity is the only way, then does that mean that God is going to send everyone else to hell? Well, actually, you know what the Bible teaches? It's God's desire that no one should experience hell. His desire is that everyone would receive the gift of eternal life in paradise with Jesus and through Jesus. And since God didn't make us mindless robots, we we have a free choice to accept the gift or reject the gift. Um, And there are consequences that come with that freedom that we have. And if there weren't consequences, the choice would be meaningless and we would be robots. So I may be accused of of splitting hairs here or, you know, semantics. But, But what this actually means is that God doesn't send anyone to hell. We choose 
our own destination of our own free will. This is how the Bible puts it. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead. It's as true today as it was when it was inspired by God and written by John two millennia ago. I am not condemned because of my belief in Jesus. Amanda is not condemned because of her belief in Jesus. You are not condemned if you believe in Jesus today. And this is how Jesus himself puts it. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I know many won't like this answer, but when someone asks, how can I loving God send someone to hell? The most honest answer is he doesn't. We send ourselves. I mean, if you are out at sea and your boat begins to sink and you find yourself clinging to the edge of a life raft in the middle of the ocean. And let's say a boat finds you and offers to pull you to safety. You can either let yourself be saved or allow yourself to die. If you refuse their help, are they sending you to death at sea? No, you are. The life and death of Jesus is a story about what God is willing to do to save people from the consequences of those decisions. But we have to take him up on his offer. So is Gandhi in hell? The most direct answer to that is we don't know. We don't know. We don't know his heart, his decisions. But we can say that Gandhi is where Gandhi chose to be. And that's how the final judgment will work. My man C.S. Lewis once observed, we can bend a knee toward God in this life and say, I will be done. Or at the end of our life, force God to say to us, I will be done. And by the way, when I, when I speak of hell, all I know for sure is that means separation from God. We can get bogged down in whether it means, you know, eternal conscious punishment or annihilationism or re restorationism, you know, the Alliance denomination has opinions and statements on those very questions. But for me, it's enough to know that it is separation from God. And I suppose that is consistent with the choice that, that people make in this life. To not want anything to do with God in this life. But what we, what we do know with confidence is that God will do the right and just thing by everyone. He will make the just judgment. Whatever the verdict is on anyone's life, it will be right and good. But why is there a hell in the first place? That doesn't sound like a very loving God. I get the question. I do. But I disagree with with the sentiment. Uh, The existence of heaven and hell shows that this is a moral universe, that God is a moral God and that there is truth and there is justice and there is righteousness. Do you really want a spiritual universe where um, Hitler and bin Laden are as rewarded as Mother Teresa and Nelson Mandela? 
Like, do you want a cosmic order where nothing is seen as evil? Where pedophiles and rapists are celebrated? A senile God who just kind of is oblivious to it all? Surely you don't think that is what is right and just and good. I get that hell is disturbing to you. It should be disturbing to you. It is deeply disturbing to me. Surely you don't think I want to even talk about this. But the existence of hell is what is, isn't what is evil. Its existence is what is moral. Okay, so what about those who have never heard? What about those who died when they were young or were mentally challenged in a way that they couldn't accept or reject Jesus? Great questions. And it's dealt with really well in this book uh, that we're endorsing, Christianity for People Who Aren't Christians. I guess we just sold out. Wow, that's great. Uh, But here's the headline. The answer is found in the character of God. Okay, either God is perfectly good, uh, uh, perfectly just, a fair God, or he's not. If he is, then he'll do the right thing by everyone based on their ability to hear and understand and respond and listen. We have and serve a very good God. But the real issue isn't the hypothetical question of Gandhi The real issue is for you this morning. What is it that God made known through Jesus that you need to accept and receive today? And I would say it comes down to two words, grace and truth. The heart of the Christian message that Jesus brought to the world is grace coupled with truth. We've talked a lot about truth, but but what's grace? I think the simplest definition of grace is this. Grace is that which is freely given and totally undeserved. It's getting what you don't deserve and not getting what you do. Grace is forgiveness in the midst of our sin. Grace is second chances. Grace is having what Christ did on the cross applied to your life, your debt, his payment. Apart from grace, we're all going to face the full penalty of our sin. And our only hope is for a grace-filled, grace-giving God to step in. Imagine you're brought to trial for, for vehicular homicide. You were driving down the road, exceeding the speed limit, started texting. You didn't see the person there. You're brought to trial. The evidence is irrefutable and... From his bench, the judge states, I find you guilty and sentence you to death. But then he does this really strange thing with compassion in his eyes. He gets up from behind his bench. He takes off his robe. He walks down to where you stand, embraces you and says, I love you. The penalty must be carried out for, for I'm an honest and good judge And what you did was wrong. It must be paid for. But I love you. And I don't want to see your life end this way. So I'll go in your place. And then he walks out the courtroom and into the execution chambers. That's what Jesus did for us. This is how it's talked about in the Bible. 
From the message translation, it says, we can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for. And we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. God's grace is rooted in a wild, radical love for us. A love so wild and radical, in fact, it was sacrificial, even unto death. You know, some people ask about that lyric that we sang, reckless love of God, that's what it means. You know, in, in a book that I've referenced lots of times before, the, the Ragamuffin Guffle, the Ragamuffin Gospel. <laughs> Did I do that last time? The Ragamuffin Guffle. Brendan Mann, and he, he puts it this way. He wrote, if Jesus appeared at your dining room table tonight with knowledge of everything you are and are not, total comprehension of your life story, every skeleton in your closet, if he laid out the real state of your hidden agenda, the mixed motives, the dark desires buried in your psyche, you would still feel his acceptance and forgiveness. But it is not just a message of grace, but grace and truth. His closest friend, Jesus' closest friend, John, wrote this. He said that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And, and like after showering someone uh, with grace, Jesus would say things like, now, now go and leave your life of sin, okay? Turn from that life that led you to this moment because you're not innocent. You've been rescued from your sin. Now live like it. To get the message of Jesus right, to get grace right, you have to understand that grace and truth are inextricably intertwined. Jesus accepts where you are, but he's not going to just affirm all your bad choices, okay? All of our foolishness. He's not, he's not going to condemn you for what you've done. He's not going to condone it either. Grace and truth go together. Truth without grace is just judgment, but grace without truth is just deception. And so grace is applied to those who screw up, but those who admit it, those who are willing to face the truth about who they are, that's when grace flows. So what if that's you? What if you want to drink from the well of grace this morning? What if you want to take Jesus up on on being the way, the truth, the life? We've been talking about losing our religion what if you want to find it this morning? Except it wouldn't be religion. It would be entering into this authentic relationship with a personal God. And here's how this works. The Bible says to think of it like a bridge. It says in 1 Timothy, God is on one side and all the people are on the other side. And Christ Jesus is between them to bring them together by giving his life for all mankind. Now, some of you may remember this visual illustration from a tract or Sunday school, or maybe you even tried to, you know, write it on the back of a napkin to explain your faith to somebody. But here's how it goes. God loves us so much and he wants to have a relationship with us, but you know, we're on separate sides and 
And this is us. And there's this chasm between us. Our relationship has been, has been broke off. And um, there's a lot of ways that people, of course, have tried to um, breach or, or cross this chasm, <clears throat> mostly through good works, trying to bridge the gap by earning it, uh, you know, tally up the points of good deeds, going to church, obeying the law. If you've ever watched the show The Good Place on TV, you know the drill. But um, that's not what gets you to God, because according to the Bible, good works can't bridge that gap. And nothing will ever be enough, in fact. It all falls short. And the worst part is that death is what separates us. That's That's what's at the bottom of that chasm. We can never be good enough. We can never be right enough. And, and the Bible says the wages of sin is actually death. There's a physical death and there's a spiritual death. And it's a problem because we can't fix it on our own. It's not about the degree to which you are a sinner or the amount of sin in your life. It's the wages of any sin is simply death. And there's a second half to that verse here in Romans 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And even though our sin separates us from God, God loves us so much that he has, in fact, provided a bridge between us and God. This is God's provision, the cross acts like a bridge. And I've seen this type of illustration, you know, hundreds of times. Maybe you have too. Um, I had a couple unresolved concerns. First of all, I wasn't sure how uh, athletic this person was. If how he gets over this part, if you have to build, you know, a stack of Bibles here or something, So that was my first concern as a kid. Um, It always seemed to be more of a roadblock, to be honest, but uh, otherwise it's a great illustration. Here's here's something I would add, though, as a corrective, if I can be so bold, because all all the arrows in this illustration are us trying to find God, us trying to reach God. And here's the actual trajectory, though. Is that through Jesus, can you believe it? God is actually wanting to come to us. Amazing. The king of the universe is actually pursuing us, chasing after us to redeem us and to make something beautiful here and now. We don't have to run some obstacle course to track him down. He's the one who seeks and saves the lost. He's the one who pursues the lost sheep. The overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God that chases me down, fights till I'm found. God is sovereignly and graciously allowing us to be born again. That, that is, he gives us life. He saves us. He redeems us. He washes us clean. He does all the work. 
even after initiating the relationship, pursuing the relationship, pursuing us. But now that Jesus has provided a bridge and, and even walked across it towards us, what do we do with that? Do we accept it? Do we turn away? Do we walk away? Do we run away? I remember my dad, uh, a pastor, and he, he would do these services when he preached. I remember he'd pull out a $20 bill from his pocket and say to some young adult in the room, you know, uh, see this 20, Bobby? Like, I want you to have it. It's, it's in my hand. It's, it's hard-earned money, but it's a gift to you. Just come and take it. You know what? Most often, uh, they would not take it. <laughs> They'd look around. Uh, maybe they were shy. Maybe they were thinking, what, what is the catch here? You're going to embarrass me, aren't you? I'm part of some sermon illustration that's going to make me look dumb. Unfortunately, that $20 bill doesn't become Bobby's until what? Till he receives it, till he takes it. Old man gone, you could have stood here all day waving a $20 bill. It's not yours until you reach out and accept the gift. And for some people this morning, the gospel is such good news. They reject it out of suspicion, out of assuming there must be some catch. By the way, I'm not offering $20 with inflation these days. I know you would take it. But uh, my question to you this morning is, where are you on this bridge? Are you still so far away that you're not even on this illustration? Are you right at the edge? God's coming towards you. Are you kind of tire-kicking Christianity? That's fair. I think there are those here or watching who are right at the edge of the bridge, as it were. And you know there's only one thing left for you. Turn and run or receive the gift. Accept the relationship. Embrace Jesus. How do you do that? You know what? It's one prayer away. Really. One decision away. If you can own up to living a life far from God. If you can admit that you've rejected his leadership and that you are a sinner in need of a savior, if you are willing to turn where Jesus wants you to turn, not becoming perfect, not not being sin-free from this day forward, just willing to say yes and keep saying yes to Jesus and head in his direction as he heads in yours. If you come in belief that Jesus was who he said he was, did what he said he did, offers what he says he offered, then you're one prayer away. It, it, could, look like, it could look like this prayer. Let's just let's put it up. It, it might be words that are more closer to your own words, but it's simple. Dear Jesus, I know that I need forgiveness. I believe that you died for me and rose again. And now I can have a new life. I want to invite you to be my Lord and my leader. I want to trust you as my forgiver and follow you because I, I trust you have a good plan for my life. Amen. That's it. Nothing fancy, but make no mistake about it. When you pray that prayer from your heart, everything is different. Grace flows. 
your eternity becomes secure and God takes up residence in your heart, leading you, empowering you. So here's how I'd kind of like to end things today. Just with a short time of prayer in your seat, on your own, right where you are, maybe silently in your heart. Some of you may just want to pray, God, I'm not even sure you're there, but I'm, I'm open to finding out. That's a step towards Jesus. Maybe some of you would just want to renew this prayer in your life from when it was prayed maybe years ago because it feels like you've come a long way from that first love. You've got friends and family perhaps who are not even close to this bridge and you love them and you want them to experience the freedom that comes in knowing Jesus. Maybe you want to pray for them during this time. So there's something that every one of us could pray. And I've got a feeling you don't get a lot of opportunities just to, just to sit and do that.